Welcome to 25 Stocks of Christmas presented by Chit Chat Money. Today we have an interview with Trevor Muchedzi uh, and we talk Cellink AB. It's a company I had never heard of, but pretty fascinating. And he obviously understands the company pretty well. Uh, did you have any big takeaways? Mm, I mean, he, yeah, he understands it well. If you're into biotech at all, this is probably something you want to look at. I think I probably got about 70% of what the company did um, yeah. from an outside. So I think you can learn a lot no matter what type of investor you are. But Definitely. before we get started, some other investors who are really good at <laughs> the scientific segue. stuff are seven investing. You want to talk about our partners there. Yeah, we uh, we have partnered with them to get this killer deal where you get $10 off your first month uh, if you use the code CCM and uh yeah, I mean, it helps us. It helps them. You get great advice. And you get, you know, yeah, you get seven stock picks each month, uh, each month. So it's not just one time. It's going to be continually going. And they give advisor updates that are personable. It covers their bureaus. Um, you know what I mean? So Matt, our friend who talks about Square a lot, uh, who will actually be on the show to talk about Square, he covers FinTech and he does an update with that, give you an overview. And that's for members only. So I think that's great stuff. Yeah. There's a great ROI there. And there's especially a great ROI if you use the code CCM. Exactly. And before we get started into this interview, you want to say at the end, there was a bit of an audio issue. Um, you know, Zoom, it's good, but uh, Trevor uh, is gracious enough. He's in Johannesburg, South Africa. And, uh, you know, we're trying to do an internet connection around the globe. And some of that happens. So apologies if sometimes it cuts out maybe a little bit, but we still think it ended up fine. Yeah. So yeah. there you go. Welcome to Chit Chat Money. On this show, hosts Ryan Henderson and Brett Schaefer interview industry experts and riff on the world of investing. As a quick reminder, Chit Chat Money is a CCM Media Group podcast. Ryan and Brett are not financial advisors. Anything discussed on Chit Chat Money by Ryan or Brett or any other podcast guest is not formal advice or a recommendation. Now, please enjoy this episode. All right. Today, we are welcomed by Trevor Muchedzi. Trevor, I think this is your second time on the show. The last one was like a year ago, maybe maybe even longer, uh, but it's been a while. So welcome back to Chit Chat Money. How have you been? I'm good. Thanks, uh, Brady. Thanks, Ryan. I'm good. It's been a it's been a tough year. I mean, on so many fronts, but at the same time, from an investment perspective, it's been a good year. So it's been a mixed bag, I would say. But yeah, now, right now we are towards uh, the end of the year, so hopefully we'll end the year on a good note, and then we can start a new year. Yeah, yeah and we're gonna we're gonna be talking Cellink, a company a lot of people may not have heard of. But before, uh, maybe we'll get a quick background on like you know the fund you run, um, where it's located, all that stuff, and then we can get started. Yeah, sure. I mean, I, um, I run a fund called One Transaction Capital out of South Africa, uh, Johannesburg in South Africa. It's a permanent investment vehicle, so we invest off our balance sheet, and uh, we target companies within, you know, companies that are built on intangible assets that are operating within what we believe are emerging technologies that will reshape various industries. So, you know, we can talk about payments, we talk about uh, telehealth, also edge computing and edge networks. And now today with Cell Inc, we are gonna talk about 3D bioprinting and single cell handling. So exciting fields, uh, new fields, but I think where we are right now is, we are at, at least what I believe is the second gilded age where there are various 
disruptive technologies that will change so many industries. And with that, it brings amazing investment opportunities. Yeah, certainly. Um, and today we're talking about Cellink. As Brett mentioned earlier, how did you come across this company? It's actually, I actually came across the company from FinTweet. So I have uh, a colleague that I follow and also follow me on, on Twitter. So I put out in tweet asking for companies that were sub 1 billion that were interesting outside of the US. And this is one of the companies that they uh, referred me to. And then I started digging deep into the company, trying to understand you know, what they do and where's the opportunity, try also trying to understand the management of the company and how they view capital allocation and how they view uh, investing in terms of growing the mode of the company. So it's a company that I'm excited about. It's based out of Sweden, uh, although the founders and some of the senior management are actually based in Boston in the U.S. But um, the founders have got a Swedish heritage and the company is listed on the Stockholm uh, exchange, uh, stock exchange. Okay. And this is a, I don't think I'm exaggerating saying one of the most complicated businesses we probably talked about before. So do you think you can explain it? I know when you first look, it's like 3d printing of organs. Um, but if that's not correct, please, uh, please correct me. <laughs> I really agree. I mean, it's a very, very difficult company to understand from the, from the technology uh, perspective. But I think one thing I should just highlight upfront is that the business model is very, very easy to understand. And it actually reminds me of the first time that I looked into Illumina, which is the US-based DNA sequencing company. It's also one of those companies that are very, very difficult to understand from, you know, from the technical solution and what they do. Uh, but the business model is very, very easy to understand. So I agree with you. Um, I can probably just give you a high, a high level of a view of what the company does, um, but there's no way, I mean, from a technical perspective that I can, you know, really, really tell you the ins and out, but I think we'll share what, you know, on a high level, what the company does and where the opportunities lies, and then we can talk about the business model to just give some perspective on why we believe this is a good long-term investment. Sure, yeah, go ahead. So, I mean, Selling is a Swedish-based company that is a market leader in a fast-growing fuse of 3D bioprinting, single-cell handling, and precision uh, dispensing and live cell analysis. The way to think about it is that the company uh, provides tools and technology required to fabricate live tissues that are used in drug, drug development or testing of cosmetic products, and also in terms of disease modeling and understanding healthy issues. I mean, to think about it, I think probably the easiest way to think about the company is that it is almost like two business, two businesses or three platforms, let me say. Uh, the 3D bioprinting platform, right? At the moment where the company is at is that they fabricate 3D live tissues which are used to test drugs. So just to give some perspective, right? Historically, when a company wants to develop a drug, the first thing that you do is that you first do some preclinical trials, normally on animals, to measure, you know, what dosage that you can potentially use um, in, in, in live humans. And then I think I saw a statistic that says one in 5,000 of the compounds that 
you know, I introduced, or at least I introduced in clinical, only one will actually get to uh, commercialization. So there's a lot of inefficiencies or failure. A failure is quite high, right, in terms of drug development. And normally what happens is that, first of all, you first measure, like when you have for the drug that you want to develop, you first measure what dosage that you can use in humans. So the first part is you do it, it's called preclinical uh, pre trials, and you do it on animals, and then you do phase one, where you measure uh, the safety of the drug, then you go to phase two, where you measure the efficacy of the drug, then to phase three, then to phase four, and then to phase five, right? So that's, that's almost like the standard, the standard routine of how it's done today. But where 3D bioprinting comes in is that you can actually print live human tissues, and then you can test your drugs on live human tissues. So instead of you doing phase zero, one, and two, and three, you can actually combine everything, right? And what that does is that it actually cut costs significantly uh, for the pharmaceutical companies, because instead of you going on with the drug only for it to fail in stage two or three, you can actually eliminate the drug upfront if you can see that there's a problem with that particular compound. So 3D bioprinting, where they are at the moment, is that it's actually used for research, especially um, in, initially it was within universities, but now they've moved into, into the pharmaceutical industry and it's used for research. So if you say, or, you say, or if it's a cosmetic company and they want to uh, try a new cosmetic product, they just print uh, 3D live tissues of a skin or of a human skin, and then they can do product testing on that on that um, product. So it's almost a very efficient way for you to develop drugs in cosmetic products. So that's the first thing that they do. And then secondly, they're also into what's called single cell handling and precision dispensing. Essentially, what this is is that the process of developing 3D bio um, bioproducts, there's a long process involved, which includes, you know, like, uh, like separating single cells and then analyzing them and then preparing them for 3D bioprinting. So all that workflow requires what's called single cell handling. And this company, CellLink, they provide the, uh, the rails or they provide the tools and instruments that are used for that. So they're almost like, um, I think a very good equivalent of this company will be Illumina, uh, which is in the DNA sequencing. But that's almost what selling that does, but within the 3D bioprinting space. Okay, and then how large of a market is this? Is the bet really that this market's going to grow over time? Or do they have, you know, how many customers do they currently have? At the moment, the company has got 1,800 customers within 60 countries, mainly uh, pharmaceutical companies, laboratories, and then um, diagnostic companies. But I think the way to think about this, probably if I can give some context of where the market is and then where it's, where it's going. Okay. The concept of 3D bioprinting has been around for a few years. But the industry had two big problems. Number one is that the cost of bioprinters were extremely high. You're looking at $300,000 just for one printer, right? So what this meant is that besides the big laboratories or the big diagnostic companies, if you're a small lab, you couldn't afford uh, to, you know, to buy a printer because they were extremely quite expensive. So that's the first problem that they had. And the second problem that they had is that 
scientists within those laboratories or diagnostic companies, they had to develop their own bio-inks. So bio-inks, just think of, of it as a, it's like a cartridge or, or a toner that you use in a printer, right? So after buying, a, after buying a printer, you had to develop your own cartridge in your own toner, which also obviously became a very, very cumbersome and expensive process. So those two factors really hindered the ability of the market to grow. And for a while, it, it, the market was almost stagnant, although the concept has been, had been around uh, for a while. So the founders for selling, uh, to give you some history in that, one of the key founders, which is the CEO at the moment, his father developed the material that could be used to produce bio-inks in Sweden. So what he then did is that he managed to take that material and commercialized it and be began to develop uh, what they call universal bio-inks. It's almost like a toner or a cartridge that anyone, if you wanted to go into 3D bioprinting, you would simply buy from them off the shelf, right? So what these guys did is that once they developed the product, they set, they set up a website just to measure demand for the product. And within 24 hours, all this talk was sold out. So then they knew that there was a market for the standardization of developing of bio, of bio inks. And that's kind of like, like how the company was launched. But then to further expand the market, they had to tackle the first problem, which was uh, cost prohibitive, um, you know, the cost of the printer itself, which was very, very prohibitive, $300,000. So they invested quite a bit of capital and they um, developed a 3D bioprinter, which cost $5,000, down from $300,000. And that opened really the opportunity uh, for 3D bioprinting to take place. I mean, this company is less than five years old, so it's quite, it's quite small, it's quite new. And the market really for uh, bioprinting is estimated at around 200 billion US dollars in totality. Wow, 200, 200 billion? Wow. That's a, that's a lot bigger yeah. than I would have thought. Yeah, definitely, yeah. It's just that uh, I think for the past couple of years, it has been stagnant because most of the laboratories or diagnostic companies, right, or the smaller pharmaceutical companies just couldn't afford the cost of bioprinters. It was just too much. But right now you can easily get a bioprinter for $5,000. And probably within the next few years, you can start getting a bioprinter for $1,000, which is like the price, of, the price of an iPhone. Right. Once you do that, then, you know, the adoption rate for the technology will simply, uh, you know, will simply go up exponentially. Do you want to talk more about management, uh, sort of who they are, who runs the company, and then what you think of them? So uh, the three co-founders were actually quite young. I think they were around 25 years when they launched the company five years ago. So probably they are slightly over 30. Uh, they own 42% of, of the company. The CEO, uh, Eric, it was his father that developed the material that's used for bio-ink. So that's kind of like the historical perspective uh, for that. And then the other two guys, one is the CFO and one is the uh, uh, CTO, the Chief Technological Officer. So those are the three founders um, for the company. Um, I think right now, the way, because I mean, they've got so much skin in the game, right? I mean, you're looking at 42% of the, they own 42% of the outstanding shares in the company. And the way to think about it and the way that they've been building the company over the last few years, 
the CEO really talks about being in it for the long haul. They're still quite young uh, at, 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 at the age of 30. So I think they'll be with the company for a very, very long time. Okay. Uh, I have one question and then we'll get to the investment thesis part. So you mentioned that they're getting the cost of these bioprinters down. Are they almost trying to just get as many out to the labs and pharmaceutical companies as possible? And then they're making money on either when people use it or when they buy these, you know, cartridges, um, as you like to describe it? Yes. So that is, that is exactly the business model. So the business model at the moment is to expand your installed base. So it's very simple, right? So they, they lower the cost of the printer significantly, which will, you know, make it easy for small, medium-scale laboratories, laboratories and diagnostic companies and also pharmaceutical companies to buy these printers and install them within, within, their, within their labs. And then they make money from the consumables, which is the bio-inks that they sell. Right, so that's one part of business. So it's it's a simply it's simply a matter of um, growing your installed base, and then you make money of the consumables. And then the second part of the business is that three D bioprinting was their legacy product. Over the last year, they've made three acquisitions in Germany that have moved them into the space of into the space which is called. Uh, Liquid, uh, liquid handling and precision dispensing. What that simply means is that the process of the process of three D bioprinting itself, right, is is a long process. So you have to get human cells. Then you have to create like an environment that enables that human cells to reproduce, and then you know you have to then feed those human cells into the three D bioprinter and then do the printing. So there's like a workflow. Uh, behind the process of 3D bioprinting. So these acquisitions that they've made, it enables them to expand their presence across the entire workflow. So they, they, are, they are not only waiting for the 3D, they're not only providing 3D bioprinters and the inks, they are also not involved in the entire workflow of, uh, of 3D bioprinting. I think a good analogy for this is that if you think of like a payment company, let's say Stripe, right? And they are initially, you know, when they launched, they were providing um, a payment, uh, payment tools to enable companies to accept payments online. But then soon you realize that if uh, your clients, they need more than just payments, right? They need invoice, um, invoicing uh, tools. They need inventory management tools. They need, they need customer analytics tools. So you start providing all these other ancillary services so that you become a one-stop shop for your customer. So it's almost a similar model and a similar approach that they are using within the 3D bioprinting when they now go into a single cell handling and also into live Im imaging of single cells. It's just expanding their product line so that they can become a one-stop shop for pharmaceutical companies, for diagnostic companies and laboratories that are moving into 3D bioprinting. Okay, oh, go ahead. One. Go so ahead. it's not just like a one-time sell to the customers. The, the, the customer relationship is more recurring. Is that what you're saying? So the customer relationship is actually more recurring, right? Uh, so here's the, here's the interesting part uh, within diagnostic or laboratory or pharmaceutical companies. When they, if a pharmaceutical company established, established a workflow on drug development, right? 
that workflow becomes very, very difficult to change. And also it becomes almost uh, a standardized way for the pharmaceutical companies to do things. So what Cell Inc. is really has been doing for the last four years or five years is to really insert themselves into a pharmaceutical company's workflow, right? When it comes to drug development and when it comes to product testing. So the way that they do it is that you provide you know, tools like 3D bioprinters or you provide tools like liquid cell handling, right? But that's not where you make your money. For, for a pharmaceutical company to uh, fabricate human life tissues, they need bio-inks, right? So you start making your money from selling them bio-inks. And the more human cells, human life tissues that they want to fabricate, the more bio-inks that they have to use. So, so then that's where you start making your money on the bio-inks or, or what they call the consumables rather than the actual printer itself. Okay. So kind of like the Gillette model. <laughs> yeah, a little, a little more complicated, a little but more, yeah, yeah. A little more technical, but a bit like the, uh, what's it, the razor blades and the, yeah. Yes, yeah. Exactly. Well, exactly. Uh, do you want to hit into your investment thesis? I know we've talked a little bit about why the business model is sound, um, but is there any other reason why you like Cellink as a potential investment? I think, um, you know, I was actually reading a book uh, called, I think it's called the, the Future is Faster Than You Think. And it talks about that most technological breakthroughs go through, you know, like a five-stage process. And one of the stages is what they call the deception stage, where a technology is hyped, but then for some reason, it feels to live up to the hype, right? And then it goes through this domain stage where you know, there isn't much traction and there isn't much adoption that's going on. And it's mainly because most technologies, they require almost like other pieces to come together, right? So if you talk about, let's say for example, if you talk about like social media, right? Why it became easier for Facebook to take off might just because other technologies, you know, fell into place at the same time. The mobile technology really took off Right, and at the same time, he had AI taking off, he had cloud also taking off. So a combination of different technologies makes it easier for a company to take off. And I think there are also historical examples of companies that are, that are referred to as though they came in too early, right, um, for the mass adoption of the technology, because some of the missing pieces were not there yet. I think that's the place that we find ourselves with 3D bioprinting. There were a lot of other technologies that were not yet, you know, um, we, we, they were not yet developed. Therefore, the adoption rate for 3D bioprinting and what it can achieve, you know, stalled a little bit. But now, if you look at the past few years, I think now we are getting to a point where most of these um, fundamental foundational technologies are now in place. And we can see the adoption of 3D bioprinting really, really taking off, right? And if you look at the company, I mean, if you look at the common results for the last, since their, since their launch five years ago, they've been growing revenue uh, at about 163% year on year, if you include this year. But obviously, obviously there was some impact in terms of laboratory activities because of COVID. So growth for FY20 is around 70%. 
if you exclude FY20, if you just look at the four years prior to that, the company has been growing at 200% year on year. And one of the big drivers, right, has been the adoption of this technology within the pharmaceutical and diagnostic industries. Because now what pharmaceutical companies have realized is that, you know, instead of them spending around 2.5 billion US dollars just to develop a drug and take them four years to do that, now they can actually develop a drug for um, like a lower fraction of that cost and also they can also cut the time that's required to develop a drug because you don't have to go through clinical trials anymore, right? So you don't have to test your drugs on animals anymore. You can simply uh, print human life, human tissues, and then you can test your drugs there. So it really cuts your, your development time and also really cuts the wastage and also therefore it, it actually lowers your cost. So if you look at um, for, for selling, or for example, if you look at the past four years, they just grown, you know, almost 200% year on year, right? In terms of, um, in terms of um, uh, the revenue. And, and, and it's really been driven by the adoption of this technology within the pharmaceutical industry. And then going forward, right? The foundational technology is actually also, is actually falling into place where they can now start using this technology to print human organs that can be used in transplants. I mean, globally, there are close to over 3 million people that are on a donor waiting list for an organ. And of those people, only 30% actually receive the organ. The other 70% simply die whilst waiting. And because the current model, right, for you to receive an, an organ, someone has to die. That's the current model. But with 3D bioprinting now, it's possible to start thinking about printing a, a lung or a heart or a bone marrow or a kidney, and then just replace or that's, just use that for the, for, the, for the organ transplant. So that's, that's in itself is a very huge market that I can see going forward. But I think uh, to answer your question, probably in summary, I think uh, one of the key takeaways from this is that it's just that the technology or the foundational technologies that are required for 3D bioprinting to take off, I think we now have them. And I think over the next few years, we start seeing the massive adoption of this technology across the board. Okay, it sounds like, yeah, the value proposition is there. It sounds like they have a large potential for growth. Um, what kind of margins are they at right now? I mean, maybe they're unprofitable and they might just have some positive gross margins. And how do you look at that margin structure over, over time? So the, from a gross margin perspective, the 3D bioprinters, I mean, you're looking at about 70% gross margin. The consumables, which is the bio-ins and the regents that they use, or that are used, those ones are quite profitable. Quite profitable. You're looking at um, between 90 to 95% profit margins, right? So on a company-wide level, I think um, right now the company is around 70% because most of their sales are still, are still, 3D, are still the 3D bioprinters but the consumables are becoming a large and larger proportion of the total sales. So in, when the company development matures, I expect gross profit margins to be around 85%, you know, by and large. And then in terms of profitability, right, 
Cell Inc. is almost like any other SaaS company or any other startup. Right now, they spend a lot of capital in terms of driving marketing and sales. Because remember, the model is to install your printers in as many laboratories as possible. And then they also spent almost half of their sales on research and development. That what, that's what enabled them to reduce the cost of a printer from 300,000 US dollars to 5,000 US dollars. So they spend a lot of capital on, um, you know, on research and development. And they're also doing the same in terms of developing the bio inks. Right now, they've got a portfolio of over 60 bio inks within their, within, within their stable. And they need, you know, they're probably spending more capital in terms of developing, um, developing uh, those products. So in the short term, I think the, you can expect the company probably to slightly break even or make a small loss as they ramp up the sales and marketing. But in the long term, if you look at other life science companies, you're looking at around 35% to 40% in terms of net profit margins. Okay. I think that answers most of our questions. Do you, Brett, do you have any more for the first half? I'm all good. I'm okay. Good. Uh, we're going to hit a quick break and then we're going to try to poke some holes in Trevor's thesis. Cox Panoramic Wi-Fi includes advanced security to help protect all your connected devices. You'll get real-time alerts. Oh, like this one. So you don't have to worry about malware. Or when your kid downloads a song from a shady link. And now all your computer can play is red color, red color, where are you? <sighs> all blocked, thanks to advanced security, included with Cox Panoramic Wi-Fi. Advanced security must be enabled in the Panoramic Wi-Fi app. Restrictions apply. Welcome back in. Next up, we have Devil's Advocate. You guys know how this goes. We have our counterpoints, and it's Trevor's job to refute them. I'm going to go first. The first one is around share dilution. Uh, so over the last year, share count grew by 21%. They're currently operating cash flow negative. Uh, as a shareholder, does it concern you that they might have to finance growth from here on out uh, through further equity raises? Sure. I mean, just to give some color, right, on the increase in share count over the past financial year, the company conducted two capital raises, first in January 2020 to raise $45 million, and then most recently in August to raise $115 million US dollars. And this was partly to finance uh, the acquisition of a German-based company called Sinion. I hope I'm pronouncing it correctly but it's a German-based company that is focused on uh, liquid handling and precision at dispensing technology. And the rationale behind this acquisition, right, as I probably noted earlier on, is that Cell Inc. initially or historically had only been involved in the provision of 3D bioprinters and bio inks, but they wanted to expand their value proposition so that they become a one-stop shop company for pharmaceutical companies and diagnostic companies. So this capital raise that is that did increase the share count was to finance that acquisition. And just to give some color right on what they are paying for the acquisition, uh, Sinion, which is the German-based company, was had a, had a revenue run rate of around 50 million US dollars. And Cell Inc. paid 97 million for that company. 
and and so so essentially they paid two x uh, last twelve months sales for the company, and the company is growing at forty percent year on year. So I think it then boils down to the question around, you know, is management disciplined in terms of the acquisitions, in terms of the M and A, and also are they not overpaying for these M and As? But I think in the US, probably you guys know. If you can find a company that's growing 40% year on year with also 80% profit margin, and you can pay 2x last 12 months sales for that, I think that's a good deal. Oh, for sure. Yeah, that, that sounds like they uh, got a great deal there. Does it concern you at all that, uh, that they might do this again, I guess? Um, or are you okay with the acquisitions? Uh, do they have a long history of making acquisitions? Is this is like 21% uh, shares outstanding increasing. Um, is that normalized? Is that is that something that people might see again? So right now, I mean, the company is five old and they've only made three acquisitions to date. So that's that's as far as their history goes. So they only made three acquisitions. Um, but of those three is the last acquisition in September, which was quite big, where they paid 97 million USD. So that's the biggest ticket item that they've um, that they've paid. The CEO have noted that they've got 15 to 20 companies in the in the acquisition pipeline and they are looking to do a quite a few more going forward. But they also highlighted that some of the acquisitions that they might do might be some much smaller companies. So we'll probably not expect same ticket ticket sizes is the Sanyon um, acquisition which was done in September, which closed in September for about 97 million US dollars. But I mean, it's a growth, this is a growth story, right? And the company really, I mean, in a nutshell, and also what the CEO mentioned in the last earnings call is that they want to create a platform, a platform company where if you are operating a pharmaceutical company, you know that you can, you can get all the tools and instruments that you need to automate your workflows in drug development, in product testing from one company. So you know, control as much of the value chain that they can in terms of automating that process, that then also feeds into the bioprinting uh, business. So I think over the next few years, we can see a bit of acquisitions. Um, some of them might be financed probably by other capital raise, but I also believe that Right now, if you look at the revenue growth trajectory and also the company's uh, gross profit margins, I think soon or soon rather than later, the company will get to a point where they start financing these acquisitions from internal cash flows. Okay, well, I'll hit my counterpoint. Um, you may have mentioned this. You mentioned this a bit when you talked about how you know they are already growing revenue. Um, they already are proving business model works, but are you worried at all that this is might be hyped up as a possible everything product that can solve a lot of different issues in pharmaceuticals and, you know, with organs and things like that. Uh, but in reality, it may only work um, in a few cases. Well, I mean, I mean, if I look at custom accounts, right, I mean, um, just to give some color also, last year in FY19, they have they had something close to below a thousand 
um, uh, companies or customers that they had in their portfolio. And then within a space of one year, they've signed close to another thousand companies, right? So they've almost doubled their customer accounts. And this is really showing the adoption of the product across the board between pharmaceutical companies, between laboratory and then diagnostic companies. All the big pharma companies, the 25 biggest pharma companies in the world, all of them are customers, including Pfizer, I mean, including all pharmaceutical companies in Europe and also in Asia. So the, so the biggest 25 companies, pharmaceutical companies are now customers. So I think we are seeing a massive adoption of, the, of their products and also of their solutions across the board. And then secondly, if you also look at the volumes of consumables that they are selling, they've also been increasing exponentially. What this means is that customers or their existing customers are using more and more of the consumables. So it, it just shows the velocity of product usage within their customer base, right? And what the company has actually done is that they've implemented a program where they can give their customers a slight discount in terms of the products in return for a customer providing feedback on how they can make the consumables more effective, much cheaper, and also, you know, increase the um, efficiency and also, you know, the effectiveness of the products. So if you look at the volumes of consumables, because it tells you how much or at what velocity are customers using selling this product. And that has been increasing exponentially. And that actually also feeds into the revenue growth, which has been north of 200% year on year. What would have to happen for you to sell Stellink? Um, is there anything that would concern you? Anything that could change your thesis? Uh, probably... Uh, I think for, I think probably number of issues. Number one, obviously, if the management in the unlikely event that they they have to leave the company, then probably that's one indicator. Um, and also, I think, but I think one of the most effective leading indicator of this business model really is to look at the consumables volumes, right? Because that tells you the velocity at which customers are using these products, right? Because if you buy a printer and you don't use, if and you don't use that much, then there's only as much toner or cartridge that you demand, right? But if you buy a printer and then the rate of printing increase, it also means that then you have to start using more and more cartridge. So I think consumables are one of the leading indicators. So you have to look at what proportion of total revenue is coming from consumables. And I want to say that increasing increasing over time. Over the last four years, it has increased, increased from about 4% to around 14.5% right now. And the industry standard for this business model is for consumables to become about, four, about 50 to 60% of your total revenue. So I think this is one indicator that I'll be looking at um, from quarter to quarter just to see that volume ramp up for the consumables. And then uh, probably that's also another indicator. If, if you see your consumables flattening out at a much lower level, then that might show that uh, customers might not be, or the demand for their products might not be that strong in the market. 
Okay. And to wrap things up the last question here, um, I know this is a tough one with a high growth company because they're changing things all the time, but are, is there one change you would like to see Cellink make? Um, not really. I mean, I think one of the biggest changes, but I mean, they, they are now implementing, right? So what they used to do before is that they never had an in-house sales team. So they used to sell their product products using a distributor model, right? But the problem, problem with the distributor model is that a distributor has no inherent incentive just to push your own product because they also have other products to sell. So the company used to use a distributor model, but now they started shifting to in-house um, sales team. So this is one of the, I think this is one, one, one of the key issues that they've addressed because although moving to an inner sales team can affect profitability in the short term, it really drives higher gross margins going forward. And also it also deepens your relationship with your customers in terms of understanding what they want and what they are using and what changes need to be made and how you know to make your products more useful and also more efficient in their workflows. Uh, so this is one model, but I think um, I would like to see the company investing more into their, you know, in-house sales team. Um, so that's the first thing. And then I really can't think of anything else because right now, I mean, on the decision development, they are spending half of their sales in R&D. And the CEO has also indicated that one of the one of their medium-term strategic objective is to develop the technology such that they now start moving into the printing of um, human organs that can be used for for transplants, you know, within within um, within hospitals. So I mean, to me, if they maintain that spend on R and D, I think the company has got a very bright future going forward. Okay, I think that's all the questions we have for Selling. Um, where can listeners uh, find you, reach you, see any more of your content? Uh, Twitter handle. Twitter handle at uh, Trev. Chedzi, that's my Twitter handle. And then they can also visit our website, onetransactioncapital.com. Okay. .com. There you go. Yeah. All Thank right. you. Thank you for joining, Trevor. It's always a pleasure. Yeah, definitely. Thanks, Ryan. Uh, all right. We want to remind our listeners that we are not financial advisors. Anything we say or discuss here on Chit Chat Money is not formal advice or recommendation. Thank you guys for listening. We'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.